You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech, the Future Tech Health Podcast, and I have Dr. Richard McCullough, a newly minted professor at the University of Glasgow. So, Rich, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm very well. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me on your podcast. It's a pleasure to speak to you. Yeah. So, tell me about your uh, your research. What are you working on? Um, so, so the, the the research that goes on in my lab is, is interested in the biology of the genome of cells and organisms. So, so what we're you know the the repository of all the information that's needed to to generate proteins and RNA and so forth that drive cell function. In particular, what we're interested in is trying to understand how that genetic material is protected from harm and how it's transmitted uh, in the process of cell division. So, how it's copied and moved from cell to cell. Um, and it, you know, this is a pretty wide field that we work in uh, and I guess most people would choose to study this in, in, in human cells because that, that's that's what makes us up but what makes us maybe a little bit different was the niche that we're in is we choose to study these processes not in human cells but in parasites that uh, infect humans and cause disease in humans uh, and we've chosen to focus really on two different trypan uh, parasites. Uh, one of them is called the trypanosome, it's uh, mainly found in Africa and it causes a disease in humans called sleeping sickness. Um, and the other parasite is another single cell eukaryote, which is called leishmania. And that causes a very different disease. Well, in fact, it causes a number of different diseases. And it's got a much more widespread uh, worldwide distribution than trypanosomes. What are, what are the vectors and mechanisms of action of a parasite? Does it uh, actually integrate with our DNA or does it uh, keep its own? And does it take over cellular machinery like a virus? I and mean, what, what are the mechanisms of action of a parasite? Well, so that's a good question. So one one reason that we're interested in these two different parasites is that they've got quite different mechanisms of action. So so what the, the common the common feature of these two parasites is that they infect humans both through a uh, the the bite of a, a blood feeding uh, insect. So in the case of trypanosomes, it's the tsetse fly. In the case of leishmania, it's the sand fly. Both of them then go into the bloodstream, but then they do something really very different from each other. So trypanosomes, they, 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 they live just in the bloodstream, so they don't infect any of our cells at all. They just live in the bloodstream and they have to survive in there. And they've got a real problem with that because when they're in the bloodstream, they're, they're, 
they're confronted by our immune response to them all the time. So they have to come up with a strategy to try and, and cope with that constant immune barrage from us. Leishmania do something very different. What they do is they infect our cells. So they, they, they go into our, our cells and they live inside the cells. Um, and, and that means that they, they, they have to be transmitted from, from cell to cell. And one reason possibly they do that is because that, that provides them a means to somewhat hide from the immune system rather than being constantly exposed to them. So the, the fact that these parasites do things similar in, this, in the sense that they're both transmitted by flies, but once they're in us, they do very different things, allows us to do comparisons about how, how the parasites operate and how they compare with each other. Is the goal of a parasite to take a permanent residence inside the host, or is it to just be there long enough that it can um, you know, lay eggs or whatever it is and, and, and spawn new life, so have that life feed off the organism and then leave? Again, it's a good question. So these are both of these parasites are, are kind of interesting to our, for us because they're just single cells, and um, so they don't they don't make eggs or anything like that. They don't have complicated developmental biology like uh, I, I don't know something like uh, worms or something like that, that you might imagine. Um, but the goal is just as you say. So the the really as far as we can understand, the goal once they're in a host is to is to live and prosper on that host for as long as it takes them to be transmitted onto another host. And, and in both these cases, what that almost certainly means is be able to survive uh, in, in the host long enough that when another fly comes along and feeds on that, that host, it then takes up the parasite and it kind of gets passed on to another host. So it's a, it's, it, they're, they're parasites because they're, they're, rel they're completely reliant on us or, or other animals um, for their survival, so they can't. They can't. They, their growth is, is, is needs us nutrients from us, for instance, um, and that, as a result of that, they do cause severe disease and they can potentially cause death. But it's a byproduct of their of their transmission biology. Well, is the goal like with the CT fly? The fly is not deliberately infecting us with the parasite. The parasite just happens to use the fly as a host, and then. Because the fly will land on us, it'll go into us, or is it? Um, yep, that's, you know, that's exactly right. So, the, so, so we, you know, we often talk about to give you another example of this kind of parasitology. Uh, I guess more people have heard of malaria uh, that's, that's transmitted by um, uh, transmitted by mosquitoes, and people will often say that mosquitoes are um, are, are the, the biggest one of the biggest causes of disease. But in reality, it's not the mosquitoes that's doing that. It's the fact that they, some of them happen to carry uh, plasmodium, uh, which causes malaria disease. And it, it's exactly the same in the case of trypanosomes or leishmania. So the, the tsetse flies, are, are, or, or the sand flies in the case of leishmania, what they are is just a, a vehicle that's been exploited by the parasite so that it can move from, from mammal to mammal. And a question that, that, that often comes up in, in the field is just what is the... The evolutionary history way back in the past did they did they did they start out as parasites of flies or did they start out of parasites as, as as mammals for instance and and how did the two of these things get linked up it looks as though the evidence is that they probably started in flies but it's not absolutely certain well i was just thinking about malaria has anyone yeah. tried to make mosquitoes resistant to malaria so they can't be carriers of it it seems like all the focus is making people, you know, resistant to malaria or, yeah. you know, killing all the mosquitoes. But what about making the common carriers of this stuff not compatible with these Yes, those, those, that's exactly, that's exactly, those kind of uh, 
experiments that probably did not, probably too small a one for those those kind of projects are are being attempted now. So people are attempting to to genetically modify mosquitoes, for instance, to try and and come up with strategies that means that if, for instance, they might not be able to take up a uh, the malaria parasite, or when they take it up, it might not be able to go through the complex uh, developmental program it finds with, within the fly. And, and as you say, that that would, if that could work, that could potentially be a very uh, a very productive way of trying to uh, to prevent the transmission of any of these parasites at all. The, the the same kind of work is not anywhere near as advanced in in trying to understand trypanosomes or tsetse fly function and sand flies. And that, that's partly because of the disease burden. Malaria is a much bigger disease. It's also because we, we probably have a better understanding of the biology uh, genetics and ecology of mosquitoes than we do of of tsetse flies or sand flies, but probably in years to come that that will come. Yeah. So, what are the mechanisms by which these two parasites go into us, um, and why don't we create an immune response to get rid of them? Okay, so so that's that that's really the the connect the real reason actually that that I got interested in 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 this area. Um, you're absolutely right. You would imagine that we we've got a an incredibly um, sophisticated um, system for for immunity. We're, we're very, very good at fighting off infections. So, you know, an important question then is how is it that any parasite is able to, to get into a host, is it able to, to grow? And in the case of the trypanosomes, is able to grow in the bloodstream where it's constantly exposed to the immune system. How can they grow in these environments and not be cleared really rapidly? Um, and it turns out that they use really what well, the face of it is really quite a simple a, a approach, but the the underlying biology that drives this is is really rather complex. So, in essence, what trypanosomes do is that they they shroud the surface of the cell in one a one very dense, dense, what's called a coat of a protein, and the protein is called the variant surface glycoprotein. But the name's not important. It's just a, it's just a protein that forms a kind of protective layer around the whole of the, of the cell, and it does that in order that basically it becomes the only protein that we, as the infected host, can see. So all the other proteins that you actually have to get in the top of every cell to, to make a cell function, you know, to take up nutrients and so forth, they're not seen. Instead, the only thing that we see is this variant surface glycoprotein, this surface coat. And that alone means that it has a, a short-term capacity to, to survive because when we generate antibodies, we only generate antibodies against, or, or immune reaction against the VSG and not the other proteins. But of course, the problem is that we do generate an immune reaction against uh, the, the surface coat, the VSG. Um, and what that means is they have to come up with a means to constantly change this. And in essence, what they're doing by doing this is they're just running away from our, from our immune reaction. So what the, the parasite, the trypanosome does is periodically it takes, so it, it goes from expressing one surface coat to another, and then another, and then another, and another, and it just keeps moving forward, which means that as the host, when we start to get, it takes a few days for immune reaction to form against a particular uh, surface coat that's made, and because they're able to change the expression to another surface coat, uh, that, that provides them with a short window where they can they can survive, and what this is seems to be manifest in infections is that you get an, a, a, you, 
when trypanosomes go into the to the host, they grow up, and you can begin to see the number of parasites grow, and then there'll be an immune reaction against them, and the numbers will drop. But then, because they've changed from one type of VSG, one type of surface coat to another, you get an, another increase in trypanosomes, and then another drop as the immune reaction comes in, and then you get outgrowth, and it goes on and on and on. And this seems to be able oh, okay. to... Well, go ahead, go ahead. The question. No, it's okay. The, 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 the only final thing I was going to say is that it seems to be so successful, this strategy, um, that they're capable of sustaining infections for years and years. And in fact, it looks as though very similar strategies are used in lots and lots of different organisms, bacteria and fungi and so forth. Well, what's interesting is there has to be good communication between the individual cells of the parasite because let's say there's 100 of them and they have, uh, you know, protein code A, how do they know it all switch to B? And then ah. once there's a, a million of them, I would think yeah. they all upgrade to the new protein code. Have you observed uh -huh. how fast they do it? And do they do it in concert? And how do they orchestrate this um, evasion of immunity once they get to large numbers? Okay, that's that's a great question. And that that's the, what, I've, what I've described to you is the a kind of simplified version of how this works. You're absolutely right. In principle, what they're doing is they're going from expressing uh, surface coat A to surface coat B to surface coat C, D, and so forth. Um, and you're absolutely right. If that was the case, what you would imagine they're doing is they're communicating with each other in some way to say, okay, now we need to switch from this VSG, this, this surface coat to another. Or alternatively, they're they're, they're monitoring something about the host to say, here's the immune reaction now beginning to kick in, uh, and we then have to make the switch. One of the big surprises uh, over the, 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 the years that we've been studying this is that there seems to be not that sophisticated level of coordination at all. What they, what they do, as far as we can tell, um, is that they, they make these changes in, in gene and surface coat expression just just all the time, just they do it stochastically and randomly all the time, so they don't actually um they don't actually listen to the, the immune reaction of the host in order to to respond and change coat. they just do it themselves uh, and equally they don't necessarily say i'm I'm now expressing v s g a and I'm going to express v s g b once they begin that process it can it can move in to, you know, in lots of different directions. One cell will move to B, another to C, another to D, and it becomes an incredibly complex mixture of, uh, of surface coats that are expressed. So it's, it, there's, it's a, a much less tidy process than, than you might imagine. Now, there's one, there's one co complexity to add to that. Um, it's not the case that the, the parasites don't um, communicate with each other at all. They absolutely do. So there's very, very nice work by mainly by a colleague in Edinburgh, but a number of other people that show that actually the trypanosomes do know when they reach a, a, a high density, high density in, in of infection. And what they do in those cases is they actually turn off replication of the cells. They do that in fact to try and pre prepare themselves to be taken up by tsetse flies. But that almost certainly and we don't we don't at all understand this, but it almost certainly influences the way this coat switching operates, and it certainly provides another perspective on it. It's a it's it should be in summary to what I was saying. It should be a nice simple order process, but in fact, it's remarkably complicated the process, and with and it generates an enormous amount of diversity in in the cells, in the populations. So when you look at someone that's infected, what does the population of various protein coats look like? 
over time? Have you studied that? You know, you have um, 100% A, or to start out with like 95% A and 5% B, and then once the, it develops to a certain point, it's, you know, 12% of A, 18% of B, yeah. 13% of C. Like, what does that look like? So, so those kind of experiments, so a lot of the experiments that we do in, in, in these, in, to analyze this is, is using um, modified trypanosome. So we'll, we'll make mutants, for instance, um, in particular genes, and then in the in a culture dish, we can grow them and we can ask, okay, we, we know at this point when we made these mutants that are expressing VSGA, how frequently do they change to another VSG and what type of VSG do they change to? What we realized in the last uh, probably five or six years, and this is from a number of different colleagues around the world, is that that kind of experiment in the lab doesn't really capture the full complexity of what's going on. So a number of two very nice sets of experiments have been done recently where, where people set up or, or followed the course of infections. And what they did was they used um, sophisticated uh, sequencing approaches to capture the the VSG genes that are being expressed. And what seems seems to happen there is exactly what you, you're saying. So what they'll do is you, you put in a small number of trypanosomes to begin with, and then as you follow the course of infection, quite rapidly, you get a really diverse collection of, of, of different VSGs being expressed. And that diversity seems to be maintained right throughout the course of an infection. Um, now, what we don't really understand, and this and this is where we're, we're leading to in, in the experiments we're doing now, is what is the is there an is there an order in there? So there's when they express one VSG, when one cell expresses one VSG, does it individually lead to another VSG and so forth? And is it just is the, the complexity in there because of a population dynamics? So there's there's maybe order within a single cell, but there's much bigger complexity in a population. And these are difficult experiments to do, as, as you might imagine. Well, I would think, too, at a certain point, it's got to be communication. Um, I would think at a certain point, the parasite now has to say, all right, we need to make this host excrete something or, or express something so that the outside world knows we're here and we'll take us up so we can move on. So there's got to be that happening, too. And at what point does that happen? And does that so change that, that... as the expression profile changes of the parasite? So, so that that that's that's a very perceptive point you make, and that that we we now we now do understand how that works. So they certainly do the parasites definitely do uh, secrete um, a signal that that causes this change that I was describing in between rapidly replicated cells and non-replicated cells. So we a, a lot of work from a number of different labs has begun to dissect that, and what they 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 do is they seem to to secrete this signal. Um, and when you get lots and lots of, of, of parasites, you, you inevitably build up more and more of the signal just, just by, by density. And when that happens, it triggers, uh, it, it reaches a threshold and it triggers a change in the behavior of the trypanosome. So what they do effectively is they take that signal, they take it into the, into the trypanosomes, and that leads to a cascade of gene expression changes that changes their whole biology, it changes their morphology as well, their metabolism, uh, their, their DNA replication. Now, the, the, the question you ask is, is absolutely correct. What we're now trying to understand is how does that link to the process of VSG code switching, of which what's called antigenic variation. Um, and at this stage, we, 
we don't have a really clear answer to that. Most of the time when we do experiments, what we're doing is we're doing experiments in actually fairly artificial cells that replicate. They're just machines for replication, and they don't. They don't. They've lost the ability to uh, to secrete or recognise this signal. And, and part of the reason for that is because we're fairly sure that the process of replication of genome replication is intimately tied to antigenic variation, um, BSG code switching. But the fact that they actually have this added behaviour of secreting a signal, responding to the signal, and changing their behaviour, it, it it leads us to believe there must be a link to antigenic variation, but we don't exactly know yet what that link is and how it might be manifest or, or, or how the gene expression changes that might occur are linked at all. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's where we're leading to in, in studies at the moment, but we haven't quite reached that stage yet. I think, I mean, this is just pure opinion on my part, but I think it's better to assume that the parasite, the individual cells are far smarter than we can imagine because they need to monitor the host. I mean, think about it. They need to monitor the host to see how sick it is. At some point, yep. they're going to be in trouble. They need yep. to modify the host somehow so that, again, the host will give off a signal that they're there. They can be taken up by someone else. They need yep. to know how many of them there are. They need to know the, uh, the portfolio of expression of the, the, you know, the coats, the immune system invasion, how that's going. I mean, yep. it, it sounds like to me there has to be tremendous communication on many levels going on for this to be a, a successful endeavor. They have to monitor a lot of things. So I, I, what you're what you're saying is fundamentally correct. Of course, it, it really wouldn't necessarily be to the benefit benefit of the parasite to 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 grow so rapidly that they reach a really high density in the host, and that consumes all the the nutrients that that, that we have in our blood, for instance, and overwhelms the host and kills them. Because what that means is that they they limit their their ability um, to transmit. You know, we don't exactly understand to transmit to to another host through the taxi fly, and we don't we don't really know what the time frame of that is. But of course, the longer you can sustain an infection, uh, the bigger the chance you have of being taken up by another taxi fly that, that feeds on, uh, on on an infected host. So almost certainly, the um, what we we're just talking about there, the, this this density signaling mechanism, is probably part of that. It's probably a means to cap the, the the level the, the intensity of the infection to try and you know limit the possibility of, of killing the host but it's kind of messy this process because we know uh, that other things are going on here so that so what I've, I've given you the impression up to now is that trypanosomes live just in the the bloodstream our our, our uh, arteries and veins and um, actually we, we we now know that that's not true. We, we, there's been recent work that's begun to explore where you can you can find trypanosomes in an infected individual, and what we can see is that the, the parasites move into um, tissues in the host. So they move into uh, adipose tissue, which is fat tissue. They move into the skin, uh, and in some organisms, they they move into the reproductive organs. And there's evidence that in those circumstances, the behavior, their morphology, their gene expression, uh, their metabolism changes. Uh, and that may be a component of exactly what you've been describing. It might be what they're doing there is trying to limit the the potential that they overwhelm the host. So if they move into to these tissues, um, 
that 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 can provide them with maybe a respite from the immune response. Maybe it provides the host with a respite from the infection, but it maybe also provides a little pool of of infected parasites, trypanosomes, that can feed back into the host. Now, th this isn't probably perfect though, because one of the reasons the disease is called sleeping sickness is because the trypanosomes not only go into uh, skin uh, and fat tissue and so forth, what they also do. In late, quite on, late on infections, is they cross what's called the blood-brain barrier, and they go into the central nervous system, and it's at that point that the the, the main symptoms of the disease are manifest, which are uh, neurological disorders. Um, so it's the the their behaviour. What we're beginning to learn in the last few years is that the idea that they're simple replicated machines in the blood is really not true. They, they disseminate more widely in, in the host. And that may relate to exactly what you've, you've been saying, Richard, that they're, that they're trying to modify their biology to, 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 to maintain infections and maintain their host. It might be. So what, uh, another question is the, um, how much variation has been observed in the glycoproteins, for instance? Is it endless variation? Does it follow a pathway that is followed over and over again? Therefore, it's predictive. Or what have you seen there? So, so there is there's there's, there's quite old data that that suggests there is a a, a kind of a pattern uh, of a, of the, the 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 way certain types of of VSGs are expressed. So we we know that some classes of VSGs are found relatively early infections, and some classes of VSGs are found slightly later infections, and then another class of VSG are found late, late on in infections. Now, the, I'm saying classes of VSGs because it's not very specific VSGs, and we don't exactly know everything about the what makes these classes. The the one thing that we've that we've learned about how this might operate is, and, and this comes back to what you just said about is there endless variation? Is that the that one of the things they do very late in infections is they begin to generate what look like completely new VSGs that we don't normally see if we go searching in, in, in the genome. So let, let me try and explain this a little bit more. So, so uh, in, in any genome, what we tend to think of is, is genes are there to generate products that are immediately active and do things like they, they make a structural protein or they catalyze an enzymatic reaction. In any genome, there's quite a lot, there's a few genes within the genome that we call pseudogenes. And these are genes that, that at some point or other were functional. They could generate a product that's functional, but they've, they've suffered mutations that means that they lose activity or they maybe even aren't full-length proteins. Um, they, they can't generate full-length proteins. It turns out that what trypanosomes have done is they've filled their genome with VSG pseudogenes. Um, and what we, we know is that, that that term pseudogenes in the context of trypanosomes is actually inaccurate because pseudogenes would, would suggest they do nothing. They, they're there just as remnants of active genes. Actually, what trypanosomes do with these pseudogenes is they are a prime source of these completely novel VSG coats that are made. So what they seem to be able to do is they seem to be able to take little parts of all these genes that can be they're often pseudogenes, and they can splice them together in really complex patterns to generate VSGs that, that, that really, at the start of an infection, weren't there in the genome at all. But by the end of the infection, they are there. And the scale of this is, is truly remarkable. So the trypanosome has got 
we, we don't know the exact number, but it's thousands of, of, of these genes. It's, if, if, across the whole genome, it's maybe 20% of all the genes that it contains in its genome. And because it looks as though they can do these combinatorial events to splice them together, we begin to think that the capacity for new VSGs is virtually limitless. We're not absolutely sure of that because quantifying these things is really hard, obviously. But it looks potentially like there's a huge, nearly endless capacity to make new VSGs. And there's a parallel to be drawn there um, between what the trypanosomes do and how we as the host fights the infection. So I'm sure lots of you, I'm sure yourself and lots of your, your listeners know that what we do is our immune system is 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 generated in the course of development and what we do in the in, in the course of that development is we take genes that make the important antibodies for instance or the receptors for the immune, the immune cells and we, we we rearrange them and we build them up into thousands and thousands of novel genes and that is it me the mechanisms that, that underlie that and vsg switching are very very different but the principles may well be the same that what you need to do to to what we need to do to tackle infections is have a really sophisticated armory of, 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 of immune reactive molecules. And what the trypanosome has to do to counter that is have a, a really wide armory of, of these surface surface coats. Trying to quantify this and trying to trying to quantify VSG switching and trying to quantify the, the numbers of these is what we're aiming to do now, but it's a big challenge, a big challenge. How many different types of uh, animals and creatures, for instance, can the fly infect? And have you compared the expression of the different protein codes in various animals to see if like in certain ones, you know, there's a certain pattern, in other ones there's another pattern, or even amongst humans? Yep. That's, okay, so, that, so that's actually, this is a, what you're asking there is really a key question in how the process of antigenic variation operates. Because what I've really been talking about here is, in fact, one species of trypanosome. It's called Trypanosoma brucei. Um, and most of our knowledge of how this works is derived through study of Trypanosoma brucei. And in part, that's because it was one of the first Trypanosome species that was found, and it was the first that was able to be cultured in the lab. It was the first that we could genetic, genetically manipulate. So it became the kind of workhorse for how we do things. Actually, Trypanosomes infect lots of different species. Uh, and Trypanosoma brucei, some species, are largely uh, infect humans. There's a number of other species of trypanosomes that, that really that don't infect humans at all. They infect animals. So examples of that are called trypanosoma vivax and trypanosoma congolensi. And we, until a few years ago, I think we were convinced that all the lessons that, we, that we've learned in trypanosoma brucei would be easily converted to the two other species, which are very closely, in, in evolutionary sense, are very close. But experiments that are now being done, so just sequencing the genome of these parasites, trying to catalogue all the VSGs that are in them, and experiments that we're beginning to initiate now are beginning to suggest to us that it might not be the same at all. They may use a antigenic variation, despite the fact they all have VSGs. Um, the the, the the catalogue of VSGs that they have is different. And there's some evidence that the way that they rearrange those VSGs is very different. So 
we, we, we may have fallen into a slight trap in thinking about exactly how things work in trypanosoma brucei and imagining this is absolutely the case for, for other trypanosomes that are similar to it. So we need to be careful. We need to test. A lot of the things that we did in trypanosoma brucei, we now have to revisit in these other species to try and really understand the underlying game that's going on effectively. Why can't you uh, inoculate someone? Why can't you get a population of, you know, these parasites that have expressed you know, 500 different uh, proteins, you know, kill them. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they still have the proteins intact and inject them into yeah. someone, whether they're infected or not infected. You know, maybe someone that's recently infected, you can do later stage population that's been killed and inject that into them to inform the body to stop it or vice versa, you know, or someone that's not infected at all. So, so, so the, one, of the, one of the reasons people regularly say that you can't generate vaccines against uh, trypanosomes is because of the system of anti variation. And it's because the thinking there is that what you would want to do for a, for a vaccine is immunize them with a protein that's very conserved so that when they when they're confronted by any any different trypanosome they're capable of recognizing that because that protein uh, that antigen is is is, is is really similar between the different trypanosomes. The, the the thinking behind that is the problem is the VSG coat prevents recognition of those much more conserved uh, antigens. Um, so the question you're asking is, a, is is an interesting one. So c- could you actually could you actually simply understand the entire repertoire? Of, of VSGs that are ever possible being made and generate a cocktail that's, that's, that, that, that captures all of that. Um, so trypanosoma brucei, which we've been talking about, I think the answer to that is probably no. And, and the reason is what, I, what, what I've just described. They're capable, it seems, of virtually limitless rearrangement of these genes so that they can generate very, very novel VSGs that However hard you try to generate a, a collection of 500 or 1,000 different DSGs as, as, a, as a source of immunization, they're, they're still able to generate new ones. Um, for the other trypanosome species, I think at this stage, we don't quite know that. If they, if they use much more limited, a much more limited repertoire of genes, or they're not capable of these really complex rearrangements, maybe then there is the potential to do that. I, I, we ha- I, I, no one's been brave enough to, to try that kind of experiment yet at all. Hmm. Um, I'm trying to think of what I was going to ask you here. Um, huh? No problem. What, can you, not everyone dies of this infection, right? I mean, there are people nope. that build up. What happens? What have we learned about studying people that survive this? What, what is their immune system doing to eventually get rid of the parasite, or does it just go into like a, a dormant state forever and still stay resident with them? Like, what are we learning from there? Well, in, in fact, in virtually all cases of of a human being infected by a trypanosome, uh, if 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 you if you in, don't intervene at all, uh, it will be lethal. So m- most of the studies suggest that once a person is infected, um, if you don't provide drugs to try and clear that infection, they they will ultimately die. Um, there are small number of cases. Um, where there has been reports uh, of people who have been infected and then through long-term monitoring, they don't seem to have uh, trypanosomes. Now, whether that means that they really have 
successfully manage to completely fight off the infection and they're absolutely clear and they never get infected again, or whether the trypanosomes are just are, are present in those individuals and we've not been able to detect them and the disease might reoccur much later on. I think we don't know. And, and the reason for that is because the infection can last for such a, a prolonged period of time. But the, 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 the basis of, of, of people dying or, or animals dying uh, of trypanosomiasis is not really to do with really long-term infections. It's actually to do with the, the movement of the trypanosome um, from the blood into the central nervous system. And when it gets into the central nervous system, its effects, neurological effects, are so severe that that's the cause of the disease. It's actually not... If it only lived in the blood, probably um, people could... <laughs> they, would be, they would be ill, but they could live for a really prolonged period of time with it. So, so we can't really... Uh, we can't. There are so few cases of people that that we know have been infected and are apparently clear that, that it's very difficult to try and um, understand what might or might not happen in those individuals. Hmm. What's um? Just a couple more questions on this. I know. There's, yeah, no problem. There's tons to look at. Yeah. Where do you think the breakthrough is going to come? You know, I know. You know, if you knew, you'd you'd be further along. But where, <laughs> what are your what are your guesses? What do you what are two or three promising leads that you're following up on where you think a breakthrough is going to come, and what will that breakthrough be? So, so I, I think I think one of the real one of the really in, in this area of uh, the the way the trypanosome infects and the dynamics of the infection and the transmission. What we were talking about as regards the the communication between them, where they change from replicative to non-replicative forms. I suspect that has real promise um, in, in in thinking about trying to intervene in the disease because that that's likely to be a uh, um, a quite specific process, a, a process that's evolved specifically in the parasite. That means if you can really understand it and you can you can interrupt it, you can probably block the, the the prolongation of the infection. You can probably cure somebody with that. What what we are becoming interested in now is is so so we we sort of understand how the rearrangement reactions that, that go that go are, that occur between VSGs occur. So we, we sort of understand the machinery, the cellular machinery that drives those reactions or catalyzes those reactions. And the sad thing about those that machinery is it looks like it's very conserved with, with, with us. It looks as though it's just a, a general system um, for maintenance of genomes. So what we are now beginning to try and understand is are there, is there something at the very head of the reaction, the very top of the reaction that's specific? So how, how do they actually start the process of changing from one VSG to another? And when I say, when I say we, it's not just my lab, it's, it's, it's a number of other labs that are doing this. And there are, in this case, there are some potentially promising leads. So uh, uh, recent studies have found um, what looks like a very novel uh, factor that, that, that seems to interact with the site that the, the VSG gene is being expressed in and it modulates its activity. And that looks really, we don't know much about it, but it looks very specific to trypanosomes or trypanosome-related organisms. So that could be a good lead. And what we've been trying to do is trying to, to characterize the actual genome damage events that might start this whole process of rearrangement. And, and in that case, we're beginning to get some leads about the structures that form 
where the VSG is being expressed, that again, if we could really understand what those structures are, what, what, what they're bound by, and how they're turned into to the rearrangements, again, that might be a lead for an in, intervention. But it has to be said at this stage, these are, these are kind of basic fundamental science questions. They're not quite at the stage of translation into drugs, although with luck, that, that could be possible. Well, very good. So what's the best way for people to find out more and to get in touch with the lab or, or you? So I, so um, people are very welcome to to ask questions on Twitter. So the lab has got a, a Twitter page that uh, we, we're more than happy to interact with. Uh, we've also got a, a lab website and we're my my lab is part of a, a bigger consortium of uh, parasitologists in uh, in University of Glasgow. Some of whom are in um, uh, uh, what's called a, a welcome centre for integrative parasitology, and that's got a website where they'd be absolutely more than wel welcome to, to to email through that through the administrative staff, and and they'll disseminate any questions they've got to about parasitology to myself or any of my colleagues. Actually, you should do an unwelcome center for parasitology because parasites <laughs> never welcome. That's very true. Very true. <laughs> well, very good. Well, Rich, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Oh, okay. Thank you very much for, for listening to all I had to say. It was very nice to talk to you. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious that we all have medical issues where we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves, or by prescription, or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.